So we are in Joshua chapter 3 and 4, covering two chapters this morning. My brother-in-law asked what I was preaching on today, and I told him Joshua 3 and 4. He said, oh, Joshua 3, 4. That'll be good. I said, no, 3 and 4. And he said, you're going to go verse by verse through two chapters on one Sunday morning? And I do like to go verse by verse, but we won't be able to this morning. And the way I'm going to handle the reading of the scripture is that we'll read it as we go along. I think that would be better. I think we'd be able to focus better on it. So we're starting at Joshua chapter 3. Now let's catch ourselves up. It's been a week since we've been in this book, some of us. Um, Last week, we talked about Joshua's preliminary steps. Uh, We trace this promise through all of Scripture up to Joshua right now. Last week, we saw his preliminary steps. He was about to get his people up, move them into the promised land. But first, he sent two spies. And I can't imagine how the people of Israel felt while they waited for these two spies to return. But I imagine there was some anticipation. This promise was about to be fulfilled. They were about to have their land, their promised land, finally. So I'm sure there was anticipation. You know what anticipation feels like. You've been a kid when Christmas was only a week away. You felt those waves of excitement start to stir up in you. I imagine that was what was going on. Finally, the spies return. They have a good report. And here we are in Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. After the spies return. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. And he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan. And they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp. And they commanded the people, saying... When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So finally they're up. He's got the nation of Israel up. This is tens of thousands of people. And they move. He moves them to the edge of the Jordan. And then God gives Joshua his instructions. Now, interestingly, his instructions center on the Ark of the Covenant here. Now, if you're like me, your best visual of the Ark of the Covenant comes from Indiana Jones and the Lost Ark. (laughs) If you've seen that movie, that's what you should picture It was the most holy, most sacred, most central object in the tabernacle during Moses' days. The tabernacle is where God came to meet with his people, where God came and met with Moses. So the Ark of the Covenant, it represents God's presence in a very real way to the Israelites. So picture this, it's it's a very meticulously crafted box Gold-plated, covered in very symbolic, very meaningful ornamentation. And inside the box is the testimony, or the Word of God. It's it's what Moses came down on the mountain with when God gave him the law. That's inside the Ark. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant. This was his covenant inside there. Or the Ark of the Testimony is called other places. 
Okay? So they're about to do this. They're about to cross the river. And God tells them, okay, what you're going to want to do is follow the ark. Get the priests to carry this holy, this special box. Everybody knows what it represents. God's presence and God's law because of what's in it. And everybody will follow it into the river. Now at this point, just keep in mind, let the echoes of Joshua chapter 1 reverberate in your minds. Where God tells Joshua, don't be afraid because I will be with you. Meditate on my law. This dual idea comes up again. God's presence, his law, is leading the way. Picking up at verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests saying, take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. What I want you to notice here is Josh's, uh, Josh's, we're on that level now. I'm on Josh's. <laughs> Joshua's confidence here at this point. All we know that he has heard from God is, okay, get everybody up, lead the way with the Ark of the Covenant. That's really all he's heard at this point. He hasn't heard the whole plan. But note his confidence. He says, consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart for God, turn your hearts aside from whatever you're loving to God, turn your eyes aside to God, turn yourselves to God, because tomorrow he is going to do wonder, wondrous Spectacular, exceedingly beyond your imagination things he's going to do tomorrow. So get up, get going, follow the ark. There's no indication that he knew what God was going to do. All he really saw was the flooded Jordan River. We'll see in a few more verses that at this time of year, the Jordan surpassed his banks. It was flooded. It wasn't like stepping over a creek bed. It was a flooded river. And on the other side of that were the towering walls of Jericho that we talked about last week. That's what he sees, but note his confidence. This is Christian faith. It's based on God's presence and God's testimony. Confidence to move forward without necessarily knowing the full details of the plan. He just knew, follow the ark. Follow this box representing God's presence and God's law. That was enough. So they moved on. We'll pick up at verse 7, reading a larger passage this time. So after he tells the people to rise and follow the ark. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall, moreover, command the priests who are carrying the ark of the covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan... You shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, and the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. All the people of the land that they're about to go and possess. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth 
is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, when those feet rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan will be cut off. And the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So God gives Joshua the plan. Maybe in response to his faith, God goes ahead and gives him the plan. And it it's to exalt Joshua, not for his own glory, but so Israel, Israel will trust Joshua's leadership. And they are to go, the, the priests are to carry the ark to the edge of the Jordan until they're standing in the edge of the Jordan, this flooded river. And at that point, God has told them the waters will stop upstream somewhere. The waters will stop. They'll pile up. And you'll cross through on dry land. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Remember Moses doing something similar to this? It's just kind of interesting how it bookends to the Exodus. It begins with Moses standing at a sea. And God parting it so that they walk through on dry land. And here it ends with Joshua standing in a flooded river. And God stopping the water so they can cross through on dry land. I don't really have a deep explanation for why it begins and ends that way. It seems like God often does miraculous things in and around water. Um, you know, Noah floating on the water. That's how he saved human, mankind. Moses in the Red Sea. Moses floating in the Nile River as a baby. And Joshua in the sea. And then... Baptism itself, John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, the baptism we'll observe today. There's just something about it. I, I don't really have any deep explanation beyond just pointing it out to you this morning. So let's see what happens. Verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the ark of the covenant before the people... And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks in the days of harvest, told you so, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap, a great distance away, at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those which were flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. So the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. So picture this. Try to envision it. We're talking tens of thousands of people. And the priests carry the Ark into the edge of the water. Somewhere, probably, probably about 15 miles upstream, the water stopped. Pile up. I don't know what that looked like. I could picture a pile up, and instead of cars, water. And maybe that's what it looked like. I don't know exactly. But eventually, all that ran its course, and the priests were standing on dry land. And at some point, the priests move out into the middle of the Jordan Riverbed. And everyone passes. And as they pass, the priests are standing there with the Ark of the Covenant. And they all pass the Ark of the Covenant as they cross through the riverbed. 
As they passed this Ark of the Covenant that very clearly represented God, His presence, His Word, there could be no doubt that this was God doing this. There could be no doubt who was responsible for this. This was a miracle of God, the same God that gave them the law, that they were commanded to meditate in day and night. What a visual, what a visual teaching moment for God and his people. I'm always looking for teaching moments with my son Elias, and I'm sure I miss almost all of them. But God is pretty good at this. What a teaching moment. His presence and his law, or his word, there. Now this, I just want to take a brief diversion from our story here. And just point out how this points to Jesus. Everything in the Bible, Jesus has told us, is ultimately about him. Think about how this might point to Jesus. Okay? God's presence and God's word. Basically leading the way to salvation for his people. Jesus is God with us. John says, the word made flesh. Jesus is sort of the ultimate Fulfillment of what the ark was to them. It's beautiful how the Bible works. It's beautiful how the Old Testament points to Christ. Amplifies Christ. Lays out examples of what Christ is like for us to help us understand. Maybe it will help you and, and me to understand Christ. To think of Him somewhat like this ark. And as we are crossing through the the, the dry riverbed of our lives, when He provides for us, when He saves us from some danger, and we're crossing over, between us and that danger, we should just picture visually Christ representing God's presence, God's Word. Whatever river you're about to have to try to cross, that you're trying to muster up the faith in God to do so, picture Christ leading the way. Just trust in Him. Trust in God's presence and His Word through Jesus. Okay, diversion ended. Back to the passage. We're in chapter 4 now. Now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones. From here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder. According to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you. So that when your children ask later saying. What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them. Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off. Before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial. To the sons of Israel forever. Thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded. They took up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua. Picture 
What's happening here like a wedding day? Now, I'll explain what I mean. You know, when you get engaged, those of you who have had an engagement period, uh, ours was six months long. I was, thankfully, about three hours away during the entire engagement period, so she and her mom worked out all the details. And I wasn't there to trip them up, to slow them down. I showed up where I was supposed to, as best I could. I dressed how I was supposed to. I did as told. And it worked out well. And I have no regrets about that. But from the moment you're engaged to the wedding day, it's all about planning. All about planning and anticipation. And when the wedding day comes, we do the best we can to make sure every detail is full of meaning. Every detail is worked out. We don't just do things haphazardly at that point. We've had some people years of engagement planning. Some women probably since they were children planning the details of the wedding day. The reason I say think of this event like a wedding day is because I want you to realize that none of this was haphazard. The way it went down was specific and on purpose, arranged by God. So there's meaning to it. I mean, he could have, you'll agree with me, he could have just sort of beamed all the, the inhabitants of the land out of there. And being the Israelites in. Or even less supernatural than that. The Israelites didn't even have to be in a hurry at this point. They could have made some rafts or something and, and crossed the river that way. You know, when the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea, they had the Egyptian army on their heels. So there was some urgency. The Israelites didn't necessarily need a miracle to get across the Jordan at this point. And even if God did choose to miraculously cut off the water, he didn't need the Ark of the Covenant to lead the way. He didn't need it to be there as they all passed by. There's deep meaning here. He does this stuff on purpose. This is about more than just the promised land. It's about more than just crossing a river and, wow, that was neat. This is God moving in history to create for himself a group of people who will trust Him, who will have faith in Him, who will devote themselves to His Word. Why else put this representation of His presence and His Word right there? Note that after they cross, He doesn't have them sing a worship song. He doesn't have them have a big celebratory feast about this miracle. He doesn't have His people fast. What does he have his people do? He has them go into the riverbed, pick up probably big stones because the language is like, like heave it on your shoulder sized stones and set up a pile of them as a memorial, as a reminder of what God did. I think God knew from history with the Israelites that their greatest danger at this point was not the Canaanites. It was their own forgetfulness. This was apparently so important to God that he arranged this whole thing to end with a, a memorial being made out of stones. Now I want to take you through a brief stroll through Exodus, the book of Exodus. Some of you may have never read it from start to end. 
to see how ridiculous the Israelites are. So this is a brief stroll through a couple of highlights. Exodus 13. God brings Israel with a strong hand out of Egypt. Ten amazing plagues. Unforgettable plagues. Ending on the tenth one, the death of the firstborn. But he saves Israel. Their firstborn survives. And he frees them from 400 years in this foreign land. So when they leave, he has them institute a yearly feast and a tradition with everybody's firstborn. So they'll remember what God did. Okay, this is Exodus 13. Now let me read Exodus 14, 11 and 12. You don't have to flip there. You can listen. Exodus 14, 11 through 12. This is just one chapter over from this, what God did. And then they see on the horizon the Egyptian army coming. And they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. One chapter over, they've forgotten everything God did for them. Because they see an army coming. So God parts the Red Sea, saves them. Even though they're grumbling, faithless, saves them, parts the Red Sea. In chapter 15, Moses writes a song of remembrance for this. That's a good memory device, a song. Moses teaches them a song. Remember this. Remember this, people. Midway through chapter 15, they start grumbling because they're thirsty. So God gives them water. Beginning of chapter 16, everybody's grumbling now because they're hungry. 16, 2, and 3, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. This is like the very next chapter after Moses teaches them a song to remember God's amazing, ridiculous love and provision for them. So God provides food for them, manna. You've heard the phrase manna from heaven. He provided for them. They woke up and there was this sort of bread all around. And they had miraculous food to eat. So God says, remember this. Put some in a jar. Keep it so that generations of you insane people will remember what I have done and I provide. So they get their jar and they put manna in. Chapter 17, one chapter over. They forget all about it. They're thirsty again. And they say, why have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So God made water come out of the rock. That should be pretty memorable. On into Exodus. We talked about it last week. Moses goes up the mountain to speak with God. Forty days pass. All that stuff forgotten. We need to make a golden calf and worship it. Israel was ridiculous. They were so prone to look ahead at the dangers that could be there and to completely forget the past of God's faithfulness. 
We might thirst to death. We might starve to death. We might die. But what about God? Did he not do all these amazing miracles to bring you out of Egypt? Place bread all around you when you woke up? Bring water out of a rock? Part a sea? And for Israel, yearly feasts, traditions associated with their firstborn, um, manna from heaven in a jar, songs of remembrance, none of this was enough to help them remember God's faithfulness. To the point where God wouldn't even let that generation enter the promised land at all. So here they have another chance in Joshua. Another body of water miraculously dried up for them. Another way for them to remember, 12 stones piled up. Not just for them, so that their children playing by the riverside, when that land belongs to them, will see these 12 stones and and say to their parents, what's with all the stones piled up? And they'll say, let me tell you, it's when God parted the, or stopped the waters of the Jordan so we could cross. The hope is that future generations will have strength and faith Because they'll remember their previous generation's experiences with God. Now why am I dwelling on this so much? I think this is the main point for us this morning. We have to work to remember God's faithfulness. If we do not work to remember God's faithfulness, we will forget. And if we forget, we will lapse into despair And fear and disaster. We are just like the Israelites. And we have to work to remember God's faithfulness. And if we do not work to remember God's faithfulness, we will forget. And if we forget, we will lapse into despair and fear and disaster. So don't let an instance of God's faithfulness go by unremembered. Write it down. Start a journal. Plant a tree every time he provides some miraculous way. Do something. So that when you're up against some danger, you won't feel like you have never had a history with God providing for you in the past. You'll remember, well, we've been up against similar and God always made a way. We can trust that he'll be with us and if we're devoted to his word... He'll see us through this. Come up with some way to remember God's faithfulness that you can hand down to your children. So that when they come up against their first really difficult things, they can remember my mom and dad had real faith in a real God who did this in real time in history. I know, I know the stories, I've seen the pictures or whatever. Husbands and fathers. Let your ears perk up for a moment. Add this to your job description. This is your job now and mine. This is part of our protecting and providing for our families. Don't let God's faithfulness to your family go unremembered. This will help your wives and your children greatly to strengthen their faith. Now ask your wives, talk to your wives, because their ideas will certainly be better than yours. And their memories will absolutely, certainly be better than yours. But initiate this thing. Protect your family from lapsing into forgetfulness about God's family. 
And I'm not saying that as though I am one to emulate in this. This is this passage has been greatly encouraging and greatly convicting to me. I'll end with this. Uh, please read the rest of chapter four when you get a chance. We are pretty much all familiar with a disease called Alzheimer's. I do not bring up Alzheimer's here in any way to make light of it, but to bring further gravity to this scripture. Because I know that many of us are affected, have been affected very deeply, profoundly by this disease. Now for those of you who don't know about it, Alzheimer's is a progressive and fatal brain disease. And as many as 5.3 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's destroys brain cells, causing memory loss. And problems with thinking and behavior severe enough to affect work, lifelong hobbies, social life. Alzheimer's gets worse over time and is fatal. Today it is the seventh leading cause of death in the United States. This is one of the most terrifying diseases that we deal with. It's unimaginable. I know that it affects many of us. Now bring it up now, because in my life, and when I look around, we are suffering from an epidemic of spiritual Alzheimer's. And we wander around as though God has not been faithful forever. And each time something new comes up, it's like it's, he's not going to be there. He's always been there. That's part of the reason why this book exists, why Joshua wrote all this down, probably. The book of Joshua functions like those 12 stones for many generations, even for us in this congregation right now. So let's fight together. Let's fight this spiritual Alzheimer's together. Let's help each other remember God's faithfulness in Scripture and in our lives today. Let us start with you. We're going to Sing together, worship God through music together as I prepare for our baptism. And as we do so, let your mind wonder to what has God done in my life that I've been forgetting about. Marathon, I talked about this, and I've been thinking about this all week, and I was shocked at things she was bringing up about how God provided in this scenario, or God saw me through this trial that I had forgotten. And I'm like, I, I'm just like Israel, I just, I don't remember. And that's why I'm so scared all the time. Let me pray for you as we prepare to worship God again through song. Father, I pray for this flock and for myself and my own family. Help us to remember. Help us to not forget your faithfulness. I pray that you would help us even down to the practical details of what we might do to be able to remember your faithfulness to us. For Israel, right here in this passage, it was 12 stones piled up. Show us some practical ways that each of us can take measures against our natural forgetfulness. Or we place ourselves on your mercy for this and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.